You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. But you know, the thing about writing, uh, putting together a diary is that when you read through the old books, you, keep, you see these points where you're about to walk off a cliff and you see yourself walk off a cliff like a hundred times and you think, wake up, but it's too late because you're already off the cliff. Welcome back to Books and Ideas at Montalto. In this episode, Sean O'Byrne speaks with Helen Garner about the latest instalment of her diaries and her immense contribution to Australian literature. This episode was recorded on Boon Wurrung country. The Wheeler Centre acknowledges their elders past and present. We pay respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and to the elders of the lands this podcast reaches. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks so much for coming. My name's Sean O'Byrne and I'm, I'm really pleased this afternoon to be able to talk to Helen Garner. She's the author of 15 books of fiction, essays and reportage, including Monkey Grip, The Children's Bark, The First Stone, True Stories, The Spare Room, This House of Grief, as well as three books of her diaries. The first, The Yellow Notebook, then Someday I'll Remember This, and now How to End a Story. And that third book of diaries is the book we're, we're mostly going to talk about today. The first two books of diaries were selections of entries over 10 and then eight years. But this one is different, more concentrated. It's a selection of entries from just three years, 1995 to 1998. Years in which, in Ghana's working life, the first stone is published, she reviews theatre and film, and writes essays on, among other things, the Penrith Labour Ward, and travelling to Antarctica. And these are the years in which her daughter gets married and her mother suddenly becomes older, less capable, starts to show some of the symptoms of Alzheimer's. All this is recorded and, as always in Ghana's diaries, there are entries which just take pleasure in being in the world, observing people in the street, paying attention to not human things, the activity of animals, especially dogs and birds, or observing the movements and changes of water or light, or air. But overall, this book, more than the other diary books, is made of entries about one main thing, the breakdown of Ghana's marriage to another writer named only as V, named with the single letter V. How to End a Story is a record of the three years in which Ghana and V found that whatever they'd hoped for, to get from each other, to give to each other, could not be done that love and even friendship between them could not survive. Anyone who reads this book will have more of a chance to think about what we do hope for in adult life, how much we can come into that life from childhood, from family, deeply hurt, deeply angry, and need to try and find someone, a husband, a wife, a partner, who can help us, teach us, correct us, and then find out how much correction you can and can't take, how much correction you should and shouldn't take. But even when recording something as difficult as this, loss of a marriage, loss of love, this terrible strain on who you are, what you hoped for, Ghana is able to make in her diary entries a kind of clean, strong extract. Whatever's happened in the day, no matter how anguishing, is held in accurate, honest language. It's so beautiful and so extraordinary and so courageous and so instructive, such dearly needed information for the rest of us in all our troubles, 
And so, please, do welcome here today, Helen Garner. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. We thought we'd start with uh, just a, some readings of entries from the third diary, just to give you a sense of, of what those entries are like. Actually, thanks for coming. I, I hope you can stand it. <laughs> you, know, it's, you never think that one day you're going to go, this is my diary, and I'm going to read it to, to a room full of strangers. But Sean worked his way through them, and he suggested some of these, and... and um, this will take us about 10 or 15 minutes just to give a shape of the book. So the first one, uh, V and I watched Melvin Bragg's interview with Martin Amos. A gripping conversation, but there's a grinding quality to Amos' scepticism, or do I mean pessimism, or de determination to entertain not a single illusion, or do I mean cynicism? When he said, if you don't think you're the best, you're not really doing it, I wanted to dong him with a bat. That was number one. This one takes place so maybe a year later. On my way home, loaded with briefcase, supermarket shopping and food for dinner, I stepped onto the curb in front of our building and tripped. I don't know, I was suddenly falling. I landed on all fours, skidded forward, bags everywhere, scrambled up. A passing man with grey hair smiled. Are you right? Yeah. What happened? Picked up my affairs and climbed the stairs, shaken, with scratched knees and palms. Came in, put down my load, said to V, I fell in the street. He was surprised and nice to me, took the groceries. I sat on the edge of his spare bed, all trembly in the diaphragm. Wanted to let go and make a racket, but was constrained by his presence in the kitchen. Went and lay on our big bed and got a clean hanky and bawled. He came in and lay on his back next to me. Why are you crying? I feel silly. I hurt myself in front of people. Why would that make you feel like crying? Oh, don't interrogate me. Let me have a howl. Don't you ever feel like just having a good howl? V, very crisp and firm. No. And it all dried up. He examined my knees and I felt how trivial it must seem to him as a physical wound. I got off the bed and went to have a shower. Why didn't I put my head on his shoulder and ask for comfort? Number three, where's it gone? Yeah. We had tickets to a play at the Seymour Centre last night, but V was still really sick. He wanted to go to bed early. I went by myself. The play was old-fashioned and dull. I nicked out at interval and came home on the bus. The flat was in darkness. I crept in so as not to wake V, went to my desk and started writing a letter. Half an hour later, a key was thrust into the outside door. It burst open and in he rushed. I laughed in shock. I thought you were asleep in there. He was flustered. Look at my eye, look, it's all red. I've been over at X's to do some paper punching for her. What, did somebody punch you? In this spontaneous question resided my sense that the floor I was standing on had just disintegrated. I went quiet. I thought, shut up, don't start saying things, just clean your teeth and get into your bed. In the bathroom, I looked at myself in the mirror and thought, 
if I don't say something, I'll poison myself with faking. So I went to the bedroom and said quietly from the door, there is something between you and her, isn't there? He reared up from his pillow in wild, angry denial. What? Are you serious? What the hell do you think is going on? Do you think I'm rooting her or something? What V's novel cost? No piano, no holidays, no weekends, no outings. We sold my car. No river, no sea, no garden. No dog, no outdoor clothesline. No singing, no dancing, no swimming. No children, no noise, no fresh air, no sunlight, no wide open windows. He has never understood what Peter Craven calls the deep moral value of fun. A strange mood arises as if we had frightened ourselves into snapping out of something. We talk, we discuss. In bed yesterday, hearing the flatminder upstairs crashing about antisocially, we started a game where I go upstairs to complain. I tap at their door. V plays the flatminder, his, his tough response to my polite objections. Four, five times I tap and he invents a new reply. We lie here writhing with laughter. Every other day, we see a movie. And one more. This one's a bit more cheerful. I went to the Antarctic as a job. I had to write about it for a magazine. And this is after I'm, um, I'm still on, on the very tip of South America. This is before, after the trip to Antarctic and before I went home. With a woman called Deborah, I took a cab to the chairlift then set out on foot towards El Glaciar, the glacier, along a track that climbed and wound beside a loudly rushing stream, stony ground with clumps of dull and dark green moss. We battled along merrily, up and up. Overhead hung curly-rimmed stony peaks split by a narrow, not-quite-pristine glacier and scarved by constantly evaporating thin white clouds. Many fast, cold streams came chattering down. The higher I went, the more elated I became. The ground here and there was springy with the matted roots of low, coarse-leaved plants. The concrete inside me started to soften and give way. My whole face quivered. I got down on my hands and knees and pushed my nose into the tight, springy moss pads, breathed in their woody perfume. I sat on a rock and stared at the stones around my feet, saw the stripes of them, their oldness. I picked up three and put them in my pocket, stones from Tierra del Fuego, the land of fire. I wondered if it was altitude that was making me lightheaded or if, or if these were the squirts of sublime joy. I sat still and looked out over the channel. Cloud shadows stood like pale, vague marble pillars pinkish cream on the glossy surface of the water. I raved out loud as I came down the loose-surfaced humps in a crouch, knees flexed, both hands spread. Give me another 20 years, Lord. I swear I'll use every minute. I'll never grow so old again. Give me 25 more years. I've, I've had the 25. <laughs> yeah, you got them. Um, 
I wanted to start by asking you about the most obvious thing I think it's fair to say that V did wrong, which has to do with this idea of the aristocracy of men, a bad old idea that men are strongly different to women, that there are things men do that they take a special risk to do and that the home has to be... And therefore, the home has to be protected against what women will do to that risk-taking, adventurous man-artist. So much of the diaries is about the trying to tell you that that's something you ought to live with mm-hmm. and you resisting and, and really telling him that it's either unnecessary or just an idea that's too bigoted and stupid. Um, <laughs> is, that, is that mostly your sense of the worst of what it was that you had to fight against from V? It's quite hard to answer that question. I mean, you know, when, you, when you've... Like, this was my third marriage. I didn't have a good history as a wife. I wasn't very good at it. And uh, I now know that whatever it is that you need to be a wife in a way that's going to make both of you happy, I haven't got it. And so I've given up trying. And I'm really cheerful. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I gave it my best shot. But um, the, the thing with V was that um, he had a what I would like to think is an old-fashioned idea of what an artist can demand, what the, the rights and prerogatives are of an artist. And I think, um, you know, he belongs to, you know, my generation, which is one in which those ideas were still given a lot of credence. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that, hap- that have happened in recent years, you know, in, in over our li- my lifetime, is that, you know, feminism has kind of overturned things like that and made us think about them again. But in some people, they're terribly deeply ingrained. And I, I, I think there was rivalry between us. That's another thing, which uh, is a very hard thing to, to acknowledge. And, and he found it uh, impossible to acknowledge. And I, I always think that if you if you can figure out what's going on and acknowledge it, you know, you're halfway towards doing yeah. something about yeah. it. But yeah. um, he he was a very he was the kind of person who uh, he was a sort of self self created as an artist. And I, I think that's I'd, I'd never really met anyone like that before. It was something I'd, I'd kind of read about in books but never actually encountered it. And he used to say things like when we were first together, because I should say now that we had a wonderful intellectual companionship. The first couple of years we were together, it was marvellous because I'd never actually been with a guy before, in a couple, I mean, who really shared what I felt was the most important thing in my life, which is writing and, yes. and everything that that, that involves. And, and so I, I found that quite wonderful and thrilling and, and because he was much more widely read than I was. He was an autodidact. Okay, I went to, in a slack, middle-class girl from Geelong Way, I went to uni and, and, and slacked my way through to a third-class degree. So I, I, I you know, and I, but, but he left school at 15 and he was probably the most well-read person I, I've ever um, known. And he had, with great labour... Um, 
created himself as an artist. He had an idea of, of what an artist was, and it was very severe. It meant that you didn't, well, for example, have kids, and the children were kind of a distraction to, to that. And, of course, to me, that's completely insane. But, but by the time we got together, we were both in our 50s, our early 50s, and so um, certain habits had become ingrained in us and he'd made certain decisions early in his life in his first marriage or not to have children. And, and, but I had a daughter and that was um, difficult for him. And uh, he, he, used to, he was the sort of guy who used to say, oh, women can't be artists. And I just thought, oh, he's joking. Um, but I found that, you know, he actually did think that. In, in yeah. <laughs> um, One of the things that seems so contradictory, which I think make, you could make readers both dislike him and feel a kind of pity for him, or maybe pity is too easy a word, but something like compassion, is that he seems to be saying two things at once. One is, women will stop me doing something I really badly need to do. Mm. And this, again, older traditional idea that he has to have the whole of the home yeah. all day mm. for his artwork mm. and you have to physically leave the house. And this, is his, this is his demand. But then again, he's also really badly trying not to be like that. And he says to you at different times in the second diary and here, I know I'm too stiff. I know I'm too pompous. I want to feel more. I should try and feel more. And then abruptly going back into, mm. you feel too much. It's not worth feeling these things. Yeah. Always, always he's presenting that, that contradiction at you, mm. almost as if he both is trying to stop you solving it and begging you to solve it. Oh, well, that's interesting. I had, no, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing <laughs> what people say to me about this book. It, yeah. it, it just, no, I mean, it's wonderful because... You know, you're sort of sunk in a relationship and then you fight your way out of it and you think, oh, phew, now I, I, you know, I'm starting to understand what that was all about. You know, as you stagger out all bloodstained and, and grief-stricken and you, you, you try to find a story that, that explains your pain and your sadness. And, uh, but, but just about every person that reads it comes to me with a different angle on it and I really love that. I mean, it makes me feel so happy and relieved, partly because it means that I'm not this lone figure of complete misery and failure. You know, I, I can't count the number of women who've said to me, that could have been my marriage. I think, what? Everybody goes through that? And uh, it, it's, well, not everybody, plainly, but I... I um, yeah, see, I think that what's at the base of, of, of behaviour that causes people pain is fear. And I think, you know, the older I get, the more clear that seems to me. And... Um, that there's a sort of, you know, in that old-fashioned um, manliness which is so um, hard for women to understand and deal with, th there's a, a lot of fear. And, I mean, you know, we could, we could go back and try and thrash that one out and it'd take you know, the rest of our lives to figure that one. But, but I suppose that each of us was... I think there's some, some parts in the, in the diary where... I, I try, I, I'm always trying to analyse what's going on. Yeah. Because in the course of this breakdown, I was in psychoanalysis, in psychoanalytic psychotherapy, which he absolutely could not hack at any price. And he thought it was... He was uh, passionately against it. And um, he, he thought 
it was a sort of brainwashing or I don't know what he thought. Yeah, he but keeps calling it applied psychology. This yeah. is his idea, yeah? Yeah. That it's, it's somehow illegitimate to organise yeah, thought you about think, your you feelings? Yeah, you can think about it, but to, the idea of applying it to your life or your behaviour was, you know, a bridge too far, as they say. But it, it was... Um, I mean, his, his idea of um, what psychotherapy was was all these women lying on couches all over Sydney, grizzling and moaning and talking about themselves. I'm going, are you kidding? It's a bloody struggle. You know, you lie there crying and raging and, and it's a fight. And, but, um, yeah, he just... His idea is... You know, he, he, he wrote a book in which character was a... Um, a, a psychotherapist, and, and it was in that book that he talked about this sort of hum there is all over Sydney, all over the suburbs, of, of women lying on couches, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, wallowing in their own um, interest in themselves. Yes. Yeah. But meanwhile, if there's any interruption to what he's trying to control in the house, yeah, he throws what you could fairly call a tantrum. Yeah, tantrum. Yeah, that's true. They were there were some tantrums but you know the thing about writing up putting together a diary is that when you read through the old books you you see these points where you're about to walk off a cliff yeah and you see yourself walk off a cliff like a hundred times and you think wake up but it's too late because you're already off the cliff you know early lunic when lunic um his cartoons he used to draw these little angel figures and they used to have like little nighties on you little and they'd be you know <laughs> flying or flapping with their tiny wings but they'd you'd see they'd be looking down at the earth mm. and they'd be seeing what was happening on the earth which was war and you know cruelty and guns and things and they'd have these little gestures you know, they, they'd be going like this with their faces were all crunched up with horror and looking down and because and you know as angels they couldn't actually do anything to stop what was happening and that's what it's like going back and reading over your diary <laughs> don't right right it, it's exactly like that and um but you know at the end of the first book I was <laughs> I was doing this public talk recently and a guy got up and said can I ask you what is your opinion of the cliffhanger and I thought he meant as a sort of literary technique <laughs> and I couldn't think of anything to say but I, I realised later that at the end of the first of these diaries there's, um, there's a fantastic cliffhanger which I put there uh, semi-consciously and it says it's not too late to save myself <laughs> and that's the last line of the book and so then of course I go for the next two books and fail to save myself <laughs> well or I think in some ways you do because... Save myself? Yes, because you survive... I was trying to think about this and it's a little complicated, but it's something to do with you want, you want so badly for somebody else to help you and fix you, but there's also this... It comes through in different entries. There's this suspicion that you might have hired this person to, in a sense, kill you. You've actually brought them in to go, all right, you decide. I'll, I'll will submit to you. There are... Um, quote sometimes from Proust where he sort of says this that you'll find somebody who will do to you solve the problem rather than you having to keep mm. struggling keep fighting mm. for something that is more independent that would really save you mm. but I do think that in the course of the last diary and this diary one of the stories going through is you deciding that you, you're not going to do that you will not bow or shy away from the harder work to understand how your feelings work yeah. and if that does keep throwing you into conflict with his demands you will bear it and you'll pay the price 
Yes, well, you see, one thing is because if, if you've been through two marriages already and stuffed them up, um, you think, uh, well, it must be something I'm doing wrong. I, I, I must be. There's some lack in me. Um, I, maybe I'm just not X enough or Y enough. So I'll, I'll just try and wear it, you know, and not whinge all the time and not complain and say, I don't want to go out to work every day. I want you to go out to work and I want to stay home. You know, I, I just, I kept telling myself that, I suppose. There's a beautiful quote from your friend R who says, some people try and stop so much reality that they begin to die. Yeah. And I do think you... I don't think you ever could have done that, but you certainly faced the possibility of trying to deny a fair amount of reality about how he felt and dealt yeah. with his feelings and about how you felt and dealt with your feelings and then did the... the sorry, this is strongly complimentary, but you the difference between the two of you is that he, in the end, refused to do that self-examination. Yeah. He, was des- he basically said to you over and over... The only place to do it is in art, and I will not do it. You don't have to do it in the home, and I won't do it in the home. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was very sad for me. You see, there's a kind of theme that runs through the the end of the diary, which is... um, uh, You know, there's a scene in the Old Testament where I forget who it is, but somebody wrestles all night with an angel, and he says to the angel, I will not let you go until you bless me. And I never really knew what that meant, you know, and I read it in the Bible. I thought, what a weird thing. Um, what does that mean? And the idea of blessing is very fascinating to me. I think it's, it's got all sorts of different meanings according to its circumstance. But um, when I was with him, V, I, what I desperately wanted was for him to tell me the truth. I wanted for him to say, listen... I don't love you anymore. I don't want this marriage to go on. I've fallen in love with someone else and I want to be with her. And I I felt so strongly. I mean, I knew that that's what was going on, but he kept on denying it. He kept on saying, oh, she's just a friend. She's just a really good friend. And so, you know, he was sort of gaslighting me. And um, I thought if he could say that to me, I'd accept it. I, I felt that I would, and I still feel that now, that if he had a as it were, paid me the honour of telling me the truth and saying, look, hell, let, let's part. But he wouldn't do that. And I, and I, I, thought, I thought, I'm going to hang on. I'm going to hang on until I get to the end of this. I'm going to try and get him to tell me the truth because I know what the truth is. It's right in front of my face. And he kept on leaving all these letters lying around, love yeah, letters, yes, and I kept yes. finding them. I kept finding them, you know, because he had forgotten them and they were in these... Talk about psychoanalysis. Yes. I mean, really. Yeah. But, but you know, I'd Who's say... Who's sending that letter to, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was... Those were quite shocking to me because they, they completely endorsed what I knew to be the truth. But he still wouldn't... He would not... Bless me. You know, I thought if, if, if he could say the truth to me, I'd take it as a blessing. I'd say, oh, one of the things he said, this connects what you were saying a moment ago, was, you know, on one of these drafts of love letters that he sort of forgot and just happened to leave in my um, paper recycle box just inside my office door, mm. um, he said to, to his girlfriend, he said, um, I, 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 I couldn't, I have not been able to bring down the knife on Helen, and that was the word he used, and that that was, I, I, I wanted to say to him, well, bring down the knife, you know, tell me the truth, I can handle it, I can handle the truth better than this awful lying. 
One of the lovely things that happens is you have this extraordinary conversation with her, with X the painter. <laughs> it's one of the mo- it's very it's very beautiful because again underneath this working male aristocratic idea, the two of you actually manage to find each other and mm. compare the story he's been telling both of you. Yeah, well, because that's the worst thing for a guy. I mean, there's that story that I quote in there. Somebody told me this once. I don't know if it's an urban myth. No, it's not because I Googled it and found this story. But, no, it's... it's a, okay, there's a woman and her husband uh, travels a lot for work and she's putting the washing on one day and she you know, goes through the pockets of his pants and finds this um, woman's name with her phone number. So she rings the phone number and turns out... Uh, this woman lives in a different, this is in America, in a different town, and he's got a whole separate domestic setup in the other town with this other woman. And so she calls the woman and they compare notes. And when the guy gets back from wherever he's been, uh, both the women are there um, to, like, speak to him about what's going on. And uh, he walks in. He sees the two women sitting there and he says, oh, hang on, I, I, I'm just going to go to the toilet. So he goes to the toilet and shoots himself. Now, I thought, whoa, that is an urban myth, but it's a, a fantastically, it's as if um, such a man would die rather than integrate the two parts of his life there you go. or tell the truth about the two parts of his life. And um, I... I... Um, it's a, it's a really shocking image of, of yeah, yeah. refusal to, um, well, to feel the things that you, you're going to have to feel if, if you actually say, yes, it's true, I, I have been sleeping with both of you and I have got two houses and I've lied to both of you. It, it's as if the pain of saying that and relieving the horrible tension that everyone's living in is more frightening than dying. But one of the things that you do that is so rare is that you can, it's so easy to read, oh, sorry, it's easy enough to read through the, the end of the first diary, the second diary, the third diary, and just see him as someone who's a fool and rigid and making obvious, stupid, old male mistakes. But it's also never all of the story of what he is to you and what you are together. And never, never. There's always this other sort of more like mystery of affinity where both of you are in some really important way in the same kind of trouble, in some really important way similar. His privilege that he misuses so much, oddly enough, runs along with you saying, look, I take my own kind of, I do my own kind of refusal to stop being an artist, to stop having my own even kind of Stravinsky's lunch. Mm. Sorry, I should say what that is. One idea that V presents is this idea of the composer Stravinsky who um, forced his family to sit in silence at luncheon. And <laughs> not, t- even, not even to speak to each other. Not even to speak to <laughs> each other. And V presents this as, see what's really possible if you're running a household well, is his idea of this. But... Again, if he was just a fool, if he was just obviously a fool, so much of the diaries just wouldn't mean what they do, wouldn't Mm. mean as much as they do. Mm. You say very strong things against your own need to to not exactly compromise, but to learn to be with another person Mm. enough, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, well, look, okay, he's an artist. Well, I'm an artist too, but 
but somehow, um, and and there are certain things that are hard for me as an artist because you you uh, you've got this work inside you which is incredibly absorbing and exciting and difficult and painful and there are times when you're not available to another person because you're thinking about that but um you know as women women we don't take that prerogative um it it doesn't seem like a natural thing for for a woman to do and so yeah there's a hell of a lot of stuff in there isn't there to unpack and something else that's so extraordinary is the ability the skill of recording the lo- these, these events, these, what's happening to you in the day. Um, I was so struck by it. First of all, the way each entry is assembled, the, the skill of that, um, the presentation of a first line, which just gets a sort of quiet, often a quiet minimum done, M returns home. We went shopping. You, you never try and do too much. It's almost as if you just begin with, you have this faith that if you just keep laying out bare facts about what happened, the rest of what's more frightening, more difficult will come along or not. Mm. Um, how, how do you think when you're making each entry, how self-conscious are you about limiting, making a good limit of whatever's happened in the day, turning whatever is in the day into an entry. Mm. Well, that's a quite a hard question, actually. See, look, the thing is, I really like writing things down on paper with a pen. And that that's the thing that I like the best in the whole wide world, is having a nice pen and a nice bit of paper and writing something on it. Yeah. I mean, that boils it down to its most uh, simple... Um, manifestation of whatever this is Mm. and um, I've got this I I started writing a diary I don't know I I don't know how far it goes back a long way but um, I just got into the habit of doing it Mm. and and I found it so enjoyable and so okay I want to write something down well what am I going to write down I, I haven't got a book to write um, this is I'm looking back into the past. Um, I'll just write down what happened today, or I'll write down what I dreamt, or what I bought at the shop, or what I'd like to wear. I'll just write those things down, and I'll write down a conversation that I heard between two people, just because I just want to move the pen across the paper. And so, and then after a while, you think, oh, this is actually. Um, well, you don't, I don't actually think. I mean, I've just yeah. got crates of these bloody diaries in a specially um, built shelf. Yeah. And, and, I, and I look at them, I think, gee, the hours that represents of me just sitting up in bed, I usually do it sitting up in bed, um, just writing before I go to sleep or when I wake up first thing in the morning. And um, so I don't actually think what yeah. I'm doing. I just, I just, I don't even know why I'm doing it. I'm not thinking, I'm not writing it for anyone else i'm writing it for myself so i'm the reader as well as so it's as pretty the unself-conscious the the form each entry takes you don't think yeah, i wrote totally. a lot I, the last one was quite one thing i noticed especially through this diary was uh modulation variation sometimes a very detailed entry but then it's almost inst- as if instinctively the next entry you would take the events from more of a distance. So right. after close description of a day, the next entry is something like, we settled it. 
mm. they're going to pay. Mm. And that rhythm runs through the whole diary. Mm. And I wondered how, again, like how self-conscious that was or was that in the entries but you're allowed to modify it when you put the diaries into a book? Are you allowed, mm. to, are you allowed to track in and out more? Is that part of editing well, and putting look, it together? Well, there's a hell of a lot of editing that goes into this. Uh, into these diaries because there's a hell of a lot of stuff in there that really wouldn't interest anyone else, I think. And um, huh. but, edit, but editing them is... Uh, well, I, I made a sort of deal with myself. I thought, OK, I won't rewrite. I'll just cut and I'll fill it and I'll... Um, if there's something there that doesn't make sense and I can fix it with two words and, and I'm, so that anybody could understand it. So I, I didn't want to sort of... Um, make it kind of glossy as writing you know I, I just wanted to whack it down and the way I whacked it down when I was writing it but but it is true that in the process of editing you you spontaneously um I mean I I, I don't remember thinking to myself "Ooh, there's a long one I better put a short one right. even on that level right or um there's too much here about interior stuff. Now yeah. I'll say what it was like when I went to the restaurant. You know, I mean, I, it, I think there's a natural kind of flow to the diary, just flowing from day to day. Yeah. But that can be you can sort of point it up yes. in a sense, or because it's striking how well it is done. Yeah. How. Well, I did hack, hack. Yeah. I hacked and hacked. Because I was thinking about boring diaries. You know, sometimes you come across a diary, and a boring diary is all the entries are uniformly at the same level of detail. Rain yeah. walked fed yep. the dog, yep. or it's the, um, bad in the opposite way where it's, I don't know what to do, will I go to Torquay? You know, like, yeah. <laughs> and it strikes me that, yeah. that, you know, those are both the opposite of what you're able to do. It must be the skill of keeping a diary in a way. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, do you have a sense of it being interesting to you as you go along as well? Totally. I, I mean, if I'm bored, I cut it out, to put it crudely. But then more something I've discovered as the years have gone by is that boredom is often a, sh- uh, a kind of shield emotion for fear. Uh, I, I, some t- I, I often find this um, in, in, like, human situations. I think, oh, God, I'm so bored with so-and-so. I absolutely do not want to see that person. And, and, I, and when I build up a sort of head of steam, about, and, it's, and I'm calling it boredom, if I have a proper look at it, I think, no, I'm actually scared. I'm scared because when I see that person, I'm going to have to say something that's going to hurt her feelings or she's going to um, reject something that, I, you know, that, uh, when you... I do think that what we think of as boredom is often fear. That's what I'm mm. saying here. So, so anyway, that to connect that with the diary yeah. is that um, if I'm getting really bored, I'm thinking sometimes when I'm bored, that means because I'm getting near the point of something... And the point is something I'm scared to acknowledge, something about myself, something, you know, unappealing about myself, some meanness or laziness or um, stupidity. And um, so, yeah, sometimes boredom is like a little um, alarm bell. Yeah, something to be pushed past to find out what's underneath it. Yeah, yeah. Because one thing you do do, um, which is very remarkable, is that you're able to make an entry after some of the most difficult days you've had. Um, I was so struck reading this diary about the remarkable entry that goes from the time you come from your flat in St. Neots. Am I saying that right? St. Neots, You've taken a little separate flat. You return back to the house. This is all in one series of entries, about three-quarters of the way through the book, and you find the first letter from V to her, 
and then yeah then i go ape shit yeah yeah, yeah. and what what struck me about this and this is sorry for people will know this this is also involves the destruction of a hat <laughs> with which is really thrilling to read that oh, because it is because you this is what I mean, though, about the detail in the entry. You don't stint the detail. You say, I tried to crush the crown, but the crown flopped back. So I had to find the shears. That's what I think to the ability to think, no, no, this is still to have so deep in, deep in you the sense of a writer's job still, even on that day, even mm. after those events. I was really struck by... Um, <laughs> I was really struck by... Go shorter. Yeah. <laughs> I wrench the cap off his Mount Mont Blanc fountain pen and stab a proof copy of his fucking novel with the nib, <laughs> gripping the pen in my fist like a dagger. I stab and press and screw and grind. And this is the extraordinary part. The nib gives way and twists into a little golden knot. <laughs> and you wrote that, I presume, the day that happened. Yeah. And you still were able to see and keep the little golden knot. That's well, extraordinary. That was the great moment. I mean, well, you can see that, um, you know, sort of symbolically, it, it was a, a castrating yes. thing. I mean, oh, it yeah. was... I mean, I wasn't thinking, I'll castrate this bastard. I think, I'm going to bust his pen. And so and I took this best pen and it was a beautiful little mumble. And I, mm. Never have I done anything. I mean, it was even more violent than throwing the soup at the wall. Yes. Which was messy. Yes. But... Um, it was a beetroot soup. Yes, in Diary One. Yeah. <laughs> I no, never, is... never in my life had I done such things. I was berserk with rage. Yes. And, but, but, I mean, in a way, writing it was part, part of the rage. I mean, you, you, to do something so symbolically destructive as that... And, I mean, you know, I sort of ground the pen. And, I mean, really I was just so... I was mad with rage. Yeah. I wasn't thinking. Uh, I was, and, and I looked at the pen and, I mean, I love pens. You know, pens are these lovely things that I adore. And it had a gold nib, you know. It was just twisted at the end and it made me feel so powerful. <laughs> and and you know, the terrible power of, yes. of, of, of wild destruction. And I don't think I've ever... I felt it before, but I really did learn a lot from that day. So it, it yeah. seemed to the detail of it seemed very. There was all the, the cigars. I put the cigars in the soup. Yes. And and it was really fun in a really mad way. I mean, I was completely nuts when um, when I was doing it. But afterward, I, I suppose that trying to write it down coherently is a way of not losing losing it in the kind of when the rush of madness goes away and you've still done the thing and there's ink everywhere and the soup all over the kitchen and the cigars are in the I was going to there's one thing in that scene where I found that I had two goes at the cigars he really liked cigars and and uh, (laughs) and that's another phallic symbol god I just thought but um I um I was coming uh, uh, in the middle of the, the wreckage. I went out to my uh, little office that I rented around the corner, and I came back. And on the way back, I was thinking of all the other things I was going to do. I was going to finish wrecking the cigars, and I was going to put them into a bath, which I would run specially. <laughs> and I remember, no, I remember 
writing that down and I just I mean insane laughter burst out of me because that was the kind of thing your mother says and I would go go and um, look you're all dirty no just um, I'll run a bath specially my mother used to say especially for you you know oh. to get all this dirt off you and yeah. and uh, so I'll bath your cigar yeah I'll get <laughs> so, that done well I didn't actually do that because by the time I got back he, he got back <laughs> yes he's he was going there. what happened don't say to me what happened yeah you know it was kind of bazooka so to ask in a kind of finishing way, in different, different places through the, this diary, you, you say, in addition to the ability to, to turn that into the capturing of the detail, you also say, it does more than that though. It, the faith in it is, the faith in making diary, making writing is that it will, at one point you say, it will, it will change your grief. It's not that it gets rid of it, mm. but it does make a change to it. And I wondered about that because it does seem there, this faith always, that in the making of these things, separate to the, pro- to, separate to the work of trying to change yourself, writing itself, without being Pollyanna-ish about it, without pushing it too far, is a continuous effort that does in some way work to say something other than make something other than your fear or your hate. Yep, is yes, that, yes. That... Oh, I couldn't agree more. And, and I'm glad you said that because actually I've recently read a wonderful novel by an Australian woman called Jennifer Down. It's called Bodies of Light. And it's a t- t- terrible story. But I was really impressed all the way through as I read it by the fact that it didn't send me out the other end wretched and desperate about the fate of the world because it everything that she was telling was balanced by her skill of, in writing. And, and I think that's, in a way, that's what art's for. It's what writing is for, is, is to balance against the pain and the awfulness of life, is, is to be able to express it in some way and, and to give it shape. And so, um, yeah, so I'm glad you said that. Thank you. I really think you've done that so extraordinarily well. I think everyone here today would think that you've done that so extraordinarily well. Everyone, please do think today. Helen Garner. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Sean. <laughs> that was Sean O'Byrne in conversation with Helen Garner, recorded on Friday the 20th of May 2022 as part of Books and Ideas at Montalto. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.